Good afternoon. I'm Daniel Paris, host of New Books in Finance, a channel of the New Books Network. The topic today is Robert Schiller's new book, Narrative Economics, How Stories Go Viral and Drive Major Economic Events. It was just published by Princeton. Now, as many of you probably know, Robert Schiller's a, a big shishka. He's Nobel Prize and such, Wall Street Journal, et cetera. And he was not made available, unfortunately, for an interview with me on the NBN. But I am not inclined to let that little obstacle get in the way of discussing the important ideas in his new book. So I'm just going to go ahead and proceed with the interview more in the manner of an audio book review. Longtime listeners to the podcast know that through my choice of books and stated biases, both in the interviews and my own written work, that I've slowly, plottingly been trying to chip away at the Chicago model, which has held sway in economics and finance for so long. I'm not alone in that effort. Uh, Many others have been doing the same thing for years, and that's one of the reasons I also wanted to go ahead with a discussion of Schiller's narrative economics. But let's uh, back up and review the basics of how we got into this position of having to propose alternatives to the so-called standard model. I can uh, refer you to a prior interview on this show with David Collender, author of Where Economics Went Wrong, uh, Chicago's Abandonment of Classical Liberalism, or an upcoming interview with Benjamin Applebaum, author of The Economist Hour, a book that just came out, uh, The Economist Hour, False Profits, Free Markets, and the Fracture of Society. Both books do a nice job of describing how what is called the Orthodox Chicago economic model came into being and in the post-war period came to dominate economic thought and applied economic policy. In a nutshell, that model is part of a highly mechanistic approach to macroeconomics based on equilibrium, that is supply and demand and balance and any changes in key inputs will result in other changes to bring the system more or less back into equilibrium. Uh, Press something here and you get a roughly equal and opposite and predictable predictable reaction there. Think whack-a-mole. Moreover, this economic system operates according to knowable mathematical formulas involving interest rates, unemployment, inflation, GDP, consumption, etc. That is, the math all adds up. The Chicago approach tweaks the basic equilibrium macroeconomic framework to assert the superiority of markets rather than government intervention in the solution and explanation of economic problems. Also, the Chicago variant stresses that market participants are rational, competition is or should be unfettered, market frictions are to be kept to a minimum. If those conditions are met, markets are what is called efficient, far more efficient than government interventions. In this view of the world, if there is a problem, something out of equilibrium, it is probably due to a misguided government intervention such as price controls, imperfect competition, bad regulation, unions, etc., So the Chicago model goes. Both the Keynesians who occupied the economic high ground during the first stage of academic macroeconomics, their guy Keynes put much of it together in 1936, and the Chicagoans who held the high ground from the 1970s on, uh, both would certainly object to my cartoonish summaries of the framework. That's fine, but for our purposes, it will suit. Now let's move on. The Chicago model is the virtue of simplicity, elegance, and lends itself to straightforward mathematical explication. Those virtues have helped it uh, dominate academic circles and academic finance, my particular area of endeavor, for a long time. The only real problem is that it appears to be mostly wrong in practice. Uh, 
great theory, shame about the reality. Neither at the uh, macroeconomic level or to some extent even at microeconomic level does it consistently explain economic and financial developments over the past half century. Uh, these problems have dawned on uh, numerous individuals, economists and policymakers who have called into question the standard model, and some of them have made a great headway. We can perhaps call them the resistance. Uh, the greatest progress has been made in the area of behavioral economics. You, you may have heard of some of the key academics, Amon Tversky, Daniel Kahneman, more recently Richard Thaler. Robert Schiller himself has played a major supporting role in the articulation of behavioral finance, specifically regarding the assertion that investors are not the cool, collected, rational utility, optimizing, well-informed decision-making machines that the Chicago model makes them out to be. And as a result, markets may not be efficient, that there are bubbles and mispriced securities galore. As the uh, otherwise very significant early 20th century economist Irving Fisher had the bad fortune in September 1929 to say that stock prices had reached a permanent plateau. Robert Schiller had the good fortune of asserting the notion of irrational exuberance, he was borrowing the term uh, from Alan Greenspan, and the existence of mispriced securities in 2000 on the eve of the tech collapse. Good timing there. As really interesting as behavioral economics has become, it is, uh, and it is increasingly well taught and broadly understood, the fact is that it has struggled to become a theory of everything the way that the Chicago markets approach has become. It really can't. It can't be rendered easily mathematically, and it really doesn't purport to be a theory of everything. Though credit where credit is due to Meyer Statman and others who have tried to create a more encompassing theory of behavioral finance. This is where Schiller's latest work, Narrative Economics, comes in, why I think anyone engaged in investing or just trying to figure out the core uh, macroeconomic issues that we face, inflation, growth, unemployment, productivity, service, manufacturing, etc., everyone should take a look at this book. It is, by the way, like all of Schiller's work that I've reviewed, extremely well-written and easily accessible to the non-economist crowd. It is, in fact, perfect NBN material. In Creating the subject of narrative economics, Schiller materially enriches the ways that individuals can think about economic changes and financial developments without being beholden to the idea of rational actors operating in efficient markets. And he adds materially to the progress already made by the behavioral economists crowd. He adds, to put it simply, culture. Specifically focuses on what most uh, the most human of cultural characteristics, the most important cultural characteristics, storytelling, to help explain economic activity that may otherwise be unexplainable by the standard model. The impact of storytelling is already well known. It is, as I said, the stuff of culture, but not in this context. And that's why this work is so interesting. Schiller uses current terms, the notion that stories go viral, to show how these viral episodes or even just deep-seated cultural narratives have real-world economic impact. Uh, quoting his words, quote, we need to incorporate the contagion of narratives into economic theory. Otherwise, we remain blind to the very real, very palpable, very important mechanism of economic change, as well as uh, crucial understanding for economic forecasting. If we do not understand the epidemics of popular narratives, we do not fully understand changes in the economy and economic behavior. If you caught references to contagion and to epidemics, you are not mistaken. Schiller is borrowing heavily in this work from the science of 
epidemiology, specifically how narratives spread among the population. Uh, Schiller's goal is not to replace the science of economics, but to enrich it and to make it better by incorporating this fundamental element of human and social behavior. Indeed, Schiller circles back to the founder of modern economics, John Maynard Keynes, and points out how much narratives played into his work. Uh, One of the best known phrases uh, is Keynes' reference to animal spirits driving investment, but there are others scattered throughout Keynes' work. Schiller's book is brimming with real-world examples, that's the majority of the book, and not just the obvious ones such as the Bitcoin narrative, which he deals with extensively. He nicely writes about everyone's favorite alternative currency that, quote, in the end, people are interested in Bitcoin precisely because so many people, so many other people are interested in it. They are interested in news stories about Bitcoin because they believe that other people will also be interested in them. But he covers many other narratives that shape the economy, narratives of depression or recession and how they shape those events, the narratives of home ownership, the narratives of gold, narratives about how to invest. There are many of them, by the way. The narratives of labor versus capital, of computers and robots taking over human jobs, etc. The narrative about the Laffer curve, hint, it involves a cocktail napkin that probably never existed. That narrative may seem to be an obscure inside the Economic Academy discussion, but it directly affects the level of your income taxes. So you may want to learn about it. Is a narrative economics a new general theory? No. And Schiller makes no such claims. But it is an important enrichment that can be used as a tool to explain economic change as well as, quote, in his terms, improve our ability to anticipate and prepare for economic events. It can also help us structure economic institutions and policy. Those words alone clearly distinguish Robert Schiller from the Chicago School. Let me end with, it is appropriate, a story, perhaps not a mass market viral one, but a story that captures the fact that stories matter. One of the great torchbearers of the standard model in finance was the University of Chicago professor Merton Miller. Not a flexible kind of guy, formulas and only formulas. As the very first doubts about the standard model began to be published, specifically around behavioral finance, he responded with a fierce rejection of this type of storytelling. He famously wrote dismissively in 1986 that individual investors not schooled in modern finance may view their stock holdings as, quote, more than just the abstract bundles of returns of our economic models. Behind each holding may be a story of a family business, family quarrels, legacies received, divorce settlements, and a host of other considerations almost totally irrelevant to our theories of portfolio selection. That we abstract from all these stories in building our models is not because the stories are uninteresting, but because they may be too interesting and thereby distract us from the pervasive market forces that should be our principal concern. That's Merton Miller in 1986. In my own criticism of the standard model, I wrote that some 30 years later, Miller's words can be read with the completely opposite meaning. Quote, from my vantage point as an investor, a business person, and a historian, I do not want to suggest that investors should not on occasion be sidetracked by an intriguing investment algorithm, theories of stock market prices, or assertions of systems in perfect equilibrium populated by utility maximizing rational actors. 
Indeed, those ideas may be so interesting that they divert attention from what needs to be our principal concern, the pervasive forces of human behavior, particularly as they apply to business ownership through the stock market. Those were my words in a book about investing, again, not Schiller's, but we are in agreement on one major point, and that is the importance of narratives. The book is Narrative Economics by Robert Schiller. It belongs on your bookshelf. Thank you so much for joining me today. 